Hey, everybody, and welcome to Reality 2.0. I'm Doc Searles, and Catherine Druckmann is not hosting this today because she actually has a day job and is busy and will be producing this, however. So she's here in spirit and maybe even lurking now and then while she's trying to get something done. Uh, our guest this time is Job Le- John, rewind. John Libkowski. <laughs> I'm not the only one who stumbles over that, I'm sure, um, who is an old enough friend who I have seen often enough that I have almost no recollection of when this started. Um, but we're, we're both old timers in the internet world. And, um, and I've just been a great admirer and follower of John's thinking and writing and podcasting and everything else over many years. What I'd like to talk with him about today is basically where we're going with this internet thing, because it's still, we're still early with it. So, so John, give us a little bit more, more than I just did about where you're coming from, both overall and just in the last, in, in recent time, and we can kind of wing it from there. Yeah, I just wonder whether the internet is is quite ready for prime time. Um, <laughs> I gave so I gave a talk recently um, uh, about um, well, it was called the end of reality: truth in the time of the internet. And you know, we all kind of acknowledge that we were a bit utopian in our early thinking about the internet. And we can see now that there's a real downside to this uh, uh, sort of democratization of media really is what it amounts to. And that's what I talk quite a bit about in, in this talk is uh, first of all, um, I started by talking about how reality is really socially constructed, but you know, there's uh, different ways to think about reality. And, you know, one way to consider it is just what's real outside of our perception, the phenomenological reality. And then there's what we actually perceive through our senses, which really is um, what we think of as reality is a reconstruction that happens uh, within, you know, uh, we have sense perceptions and the, the senses pick up these signals and we don't see everything and we don't hear everything. There's sounds beyond our hearing and, and light uh, waves beyond our sight, but we get, uh, we get enough of a perception to sort of um, set us up to survive in the environment. Right. That's kind of what it's all about. I was, I read something the other day, I think it was in the New York times uh, about how, the brain was not really created primarily for thinking. The brain was really created primarily for managing all of these things that go on within our bodies that allow us to, to live day to day. Right. So there's that anyway. So, so there's a third way to think about reality and that it's, it's something that's a product of social consensus and that really pertains a lot to like belief. You know, we, we believe things to be a certain way and much of what we believe is based on social inputs that we've had at various times in our lives and, and uh, continue to have. And um, uh, at some point in the uh, 
really in the I guess in the mid 20th century, we started having what we referred to as mass media. And mass media fed us information persistently day by day, and more and more people uh, had access to it. And we reached a point where much of what people believed and much of what people thought was informed to a pretty great extent by what they were getting through mass media. And because the ability to produce mass media was scarce, you know, production was scarce, that meant that there were a few channels through which uh, media was produced and information came and it could be managed and it could be vetted. So we were getting things that were vetted and that were, uh, you know, managed to some extent and shaped to some extent by people who wanted to help us to believe a certain way. And uh, while there was some diversity of belief and opinion, obviously, um, there was not the kind of diversity that we see now, not the kind of polarization that we see now. And what's happened with the internet is that we've had this sort of explosion of channels for media. And our attention has been uh, incredibly divided. And uh, I referred to it in, in this talk I gave, I referred to it as promiscuous attention, that we have, our attention is bouncing all over the place. And we're getting all kinds of inputs from many different directions. And different people are getting different slices of, of information, depending on where they're looking. And there's so many places to look and there's so many ways to slice it, you know, and if you, uh, oh, and the other thing is that it's kind of 24 seven, we're, we have constant access to media and to information, and it all comes through the internet now. And we're kind of like bombarded and people sort of adapt and, and, uh, and align with uh, some number of channels. And right now we have a real polarization. And, and part of what's happened now is that we have people who um, are paying a lot of attention to what we refer to as the right wing, you know, right-wing media sources that didn't even exist, you know, 20 years ago. And they're being kind of programmed a certain way. And then there's other people who were sort of like, have come forward from the mass media uh, era and still have some of those beliefs. And then there's people who are being fed from the left. And we're kind of losing the sense that everybody is sort of on the same page. So, but there's so much to talk about here. Um, yeah, yeah. A if we go back to the, the the cyber utopian stuff, um, I was that. I, I I was one of the early utopians, and in part because I actually saw the internet coming along way back in the 1980s, and I knew it was going to change everything once it happened. Once it, especially after once commercial activity could happen on it. Once as soon as, I mean, in those days you needed to, and even in the 90s, in the early 90s. You kind of needed to be at a big company that had a net connection or you needed to be at a university. And I tried to get in through Stanford, which is the nearest one to me at the time because I lived in Palo Alto and then in nearby towns, couldn't do it. So when the first ISP showed up in 95, I got on it. I got my own domain name and all the rest of it. 
And, and I remember talking to, because I have a radio background and I've been in writing for newspapers and magazines and, uh, and publications for a very long time and telling them, you know, they would say they, they thought they competed with the internet. And I said, guys, you're going to, it's going to absorb everything. It's going to absorb everything. You'll now, you'll become part of it. And, and that's the sort of, I mean, what I feel like, I, I feel like it's very early. And one of the, one of my one-liners is that the older I get, the earlier it seems. Now your, your point about, I mean, it, it isn't just that reality is socially constructed. We can, we construct things still socially, but in, in this whole new place, that's not even a place, you know, none of the, None of the, yeah, I mean, it, it, we call it a space, we call it other things, but, you know, in the English language anyway, we, we talk about, um, we locate everything with prepositions, you know, over, under, around, through, beside, within, alongside. Um, these, these, these presume a physical existence. And you and I right now, you're in Texas, I'm in California. Um, there's no distance between us. We are with each other. With is the one preposition that applies but there's not only no distance of my wife Joyce who you also know she she says there's no gravity either the the sense that we're anchored to a physical space is gone and we have we're incorporeal but in a very real but also productive sense and and we can construct new we, we don't stop being social I mean you talk about the social construction of reality when I've had conversations with people about that. And if they try to deny it, I say, well, when you're talking to other people who use a language, don't you? How is that not social? You know, I mean, you can't help it. There's a milieu that we operate in. The, the, the problem with losing the old media or having them absorbed into the internet is that there's no center that holds anymore. There's, we don't have, as we did when you and I were growing up, you know, Huntley and Brinkley and Walter Cronkite and people like that telling us every day or, or the morning paper telling us every day what was true and we could believe close and we could disbelieve a few things or think they were biased about this or that. But about the things that mattered, we, you know, we had agreements about what was true and what wasn't true. And that's harder to do, especially around politics now. Politics has turned into this blood sport where it really has turned into the Hatfields and McCoys where I don't, I think in, I think the current or the new generation of people on the left and the right hardly remember what the disagreement was about. I, I was raised in a nominally Republican household, but my father was Republican in the same way he was a Brooklyn Dodgers fan. You know, it wasn't, it didn't, wasn't that big a deal to him. I don't think it was that big a deal. It to wasn't anybody. a religion. It wasn't a religion. It was, it was just like, you know, and I remember, I mean, my father would not, he died in 79. Um, and, you know, he, he was a good soldier. He, he enlisted in the army twice, the second time to fight in World War II. Um, was very proud of his military background, but was very tolerant of my anti-war stance in the 60s. He was, we had great discussions about it. He wasn't really interested in seeing me go fight in the Vietnam War, which he pretty much agreed with me was a bad idea. And, but he was still my country, right or wrong. That was his feeling about it. But he would not know the Republican Party today. I mean, he wouldn't, abortion wasn't on his radar. Um, hating Democrats in general wasn't there, nor would he understand it when, you know, Hillary Clinton would call, you know, Trump supporters deplorables. You know, that would, 
that speaks of another, I mean, she would not have said that had that distance not been there. And had she been pretty hip to the internet as well. I mean, I think that was a gigantic mistake on her part, probably cost her the election. But well, so, so, so John, do you see a way to bridge this at all? Well, one thing I wanted to mention is uh, I, I talked about kind of what that earlier talk was. And I gave that talk a couple of weeks ago and it's on our plutopia.io website as one of yeah. our podcasts. Um, but I originally started thinking the original title of that talk was question authority. And I was thinking about, yeah. you know, the bumper sticker. I mean, there was a, a time in the sixties where a lot of us who considered ourselves to, I mean, we leaned pretty far to the left and we had this question authority bumper sticker, which meant, you know, you shouldn't take the word of uh, the New York times or mass media or what you're hearing on television or what the government's telling you, you should question all of that. Yeah. And that's a, that's kind of what we're seeing right now is it? Yeah. And what it really means is that we have lost the sense of any authority for knowledge or reality. And incidentally, there was another bumper sticker that said question reality. So we've, we've lost it. We, we don't have the anchor, you know, we don't really have, a sense that we can all ag agree on uh, any kind of single authority for what's actually going on in the world. And in fact, we're way divided. And uh, that polarization is definitely a problem. And, um, you know, you ask about where is it going? Um, I've been, that's what I'm thinking about a lot. I don't really claim to have answers, but I'm, I'm, I, I'm trying to think now about, about what the, the potential solutions could be to the kind of polarization that we're seeing. And, you know, somehow, clearly, we have to get people to, to talk, you know, and to not just throw memes at each other. And, you know, one part of it could be in getting people to sort of understand what it means when they're watching a cable news channel with a 24 seven news cycle. And most of what they're hearing, if not all of what they're hearing is opinion rather than fact. Mm -hmm. I mean, journalists used to not always, but, but it, it, you, there was an era in journalism where there was a commitment to, trying to tell some kind of truth to trying to gather the facts and present the facts as well as you could and to be fair about it. And that's kind of not there right now. And uh, just getting people to see that it's not there, just getting people to understand that their reality is being bent and their attention is being captured and misused would be a big step, you know, mm -hmm. uh, to get people to sort of, engage more with information and with misinformation in a way that they apply critical thinking to it. And, you know, one question is whether, I mean, I said earlier, the brain may not really be mainly for thinking. Are all people capable of critical thinking or what we think of as critical thinking? Um, how much can people contribute to sense-making that is, uh, that has a, uh, um, 
is sort of devoted to trying to create some collective sense of the world that is broader than just among your tribe, you know? Um, are we being drawn into cults? Do we need to be deprogrammed? Uh, I heard recently one guy was saying that the way to deprogram people who have become uh, members of a cult is to start asking them very sort of critical questions and, and really press them to answer. Uh, and, you know, in, in, in answering questions about the belief system that they've adopted, they have to think about it. And in thinking about it, they may think their way out of it. And then, uh, you know, how do we turn people that we know into critical thinkers? Everybody has a crazy uncle. Can you get your crazy uncle to really start questioning the things that he's been telling you, the things he's been emailing you? Well, I think I, in some ways I am the crazy uncle myself, <laughs> you know, partly because my my antiquity sort of pre-qualifies me for that. And a lot of what I say may qualify as crazy if, you know, if it's detached from somebody else's reality. So I had a thought. Um, it, it plays off of question authority, uh, which is what would that's what we questioned in the in the 60s in a way. And that was a bumper sticker. It occurred to me today that the thing we should question is profiling. And I, I got that to Ethan Zuckerman, who I think we both know has a yeah. has a podcast. Um, yeah, we do actually I'm remembering where how we know. He's he knows a new podcast. He spoke today, I think, maybe even to a woman in Kate Crawford. And he's in Massachusetts and she's in somewhere in Australia, but there it is. But she teaches in a NYU. And but she was talking about how with AI, especially like like any, you know, AIs are trained, right? How are they trained? Well, they're trained by humans and they're trained by humans who make judgments about pictures they see. For example, you know, there are, there's a, a database of millions of photos all gathered off the web, many of them mine because I have 70 or 80,000 photos on the web. A lot of them are of people, which frankly, I regret at this point. I think I shouldn't have, I should have put them in a more private place, but nonetheless, there were a lot of them there. And, um, but, they, but a lot of people may judge that, you know, who's a liar, everything about race, everything about ethnicity, everything about well, anything you could say to profile a person. And these are all kind of judgment calls that are made then with, with machine help where this one looked like that, does this one look like that too? But a lot of the world we're seeing now kind of came out of that. She said, it's not turtles all the way down. It's, it's human judgments all the way down. That may not be an exact quote, but that's where it goes. But I was, I was thinking also, and that may not have come from this particular cast, but it's something that is embedded in our human nature. We are profiling all the time and we, we have to, because we, we need shortcuts in order to get through the world. You know, what is that safe? Is that not? Is, am I in a good place or not? I'm not gonna drive on the other side of the road. I'm going to hear in people's voices whether they're threatening or not. I can tell from their posture whether they're doing that. For the most time, for the most part, we don't encounter difficult things there. But, but we, you know, in order to get along in the world, we need to, we need to make judgment calls on other people and everything that we hear. Is this trustworthy or not? And we, you know, we live in in a world now that I, I. I actually was doing a, a, a blog post on this and I stopped it when I thought it's not so much echo chambers, it's more like swarms. You know, we, 
we swarm around a topic. Even when you look at the way in graphically, and even though we're doing this for audio, I'm holding up my hands and John and I are looking at each other, by the way, because so, we're doing this on Zoom. It kind of helps to make the face contact. But, you know, we gather around stuff and that's what the algorithms help do. It's like, you like this, you disagreed with that. You, It's all about engagement. Whatever engages you, you see more of that. And I've done my best to try and... Um, I've done a better job on Twitter than I have on Facebook of just responding to nothing political if I can in order to minimize whatever that is. It's not possible on Facebook because pretty much uh, most of the people I know on Facebook have political things to say. And as soon as they say them and I'm reading them, I'm in that group as a way, as it were. But I think that your point about deprogramming is actually a good one. How, how do we, but I think we have to do it to ourselves. You know, How do we challenge our own thinking on this. And maybe in the political sphere, depoliticizing some of the things. So let's take immigration, for example. You know, I mean, just ask questions about immigration, you know, with, with, you know, that might be things like, can you tell me all the immigrants in your own background? Um, you know, who were your immigrant ancestors? Who were your, you know, um, can you tell us some problems that immigration has caused? Please tell, you know, that might be a tough one to ask somebody on the left, you know, where, where has this caused problems um, that you may or may not know about? Did you know this happened in such and such a place? Would you want to factor that in? Um, and likewise on the right, you know, just to look at your own backgrounds and see what, how that works. I think the easy answers for both sides are not, are not the right ones. I think there are, you know, there are, you know, we need to understand each other. One of the problems that I have, and it may be my somewhat Republican upbringing, it might just simply be the fact that I pay a lot of attention to business and economics and so forth. I think on the left, um, people generally don't understand business very well. I think the Democrats on the whole don't. And I think on the right, people do, not across the board, but I think that's one of the big reasons that, you know, that in small town America, for the most part, they liked Trump. It had nothing to do with him being a, a solid gold asshole, which I think he is. Uh, but, but the fact that he was kind of this pro-business guy that wanted to help business out. And they're in business. They run a restaurant. They run a nail salon. They, you know, they, they fix cracks in the street. Whatever it is that they do, they're in a business. And, and, and on the whole, regulation, we need regulation, but it's not the answer. You know, I've, I work a lot in universities. I'm not a professor or anything like that, but I've been a fellow at a bunch of universities. And the almost across the board, the answer is policy. What is the question? That's where it comes from. I mean, we, there's a policy answer for everything. And if you're running a small business, if you're, you don't want to hear that necessarily. And in tech, especially, I, I happen to think that as good as the GDPR was for some things, it caused at least as many problems as it may have solved. In fact, I think it's on the whole, it's been a disaster. That's a Trump word, but I think it's a true thing. And, and I think the California Consumer Privacy Act made things worse. And then the new proposition we just had passed made things worse again. We created a whole new bureaucracy for privacy without ever understanding what the fuck it is. You know, that, that's, that's another thing. I mean, it's like, you know, we, we protect yesterday from last Thursday with laws that last another 50 years. And, and in the internet, and this, I want to get back to where, what your vectors are. 
a, a theory that I have is that the internet and digital existence where we are now in this digital space is really new. It's, it's not, you know, we may think, oh, geez, we're quarter century into this thing. If it's going to be around for the duration, we're just getting started at this. How, yeah. uh, you know, we're, we're going to have to figure a lot, of, a lot of stuff out here socially before we even get around to the policy of it, you know what? Yeah. And it's not a technical problem. It's a cultural problem. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, we're culturally here now, you know, yeah. it used to be, I remember I mean, you probably have experiences like this. I, 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 I grew up in New Jersey and New York, but I came, you know, I went to college in North Carolina and I lived there for another 20 years. And, um, and I remember in the late seventies, I had been, you know, the radio station I worked for uh, got small and then later got sold. And there was a limit, there's a finite number of those. Um, there were like two newspapers, one in Raleigh, one in Durham. Um, uh, neither one of them were hiring. I was working in my landlord's sawmill. I was taking unemployment. I was, um, you know, I, I, I had a, you know, two little kids and a future ex-wife and living in the woods and the horizons of what I could do were very geographical. And I, I, you know, fortunately, because I had been on the radio, two guys that I didn't, when I kind of knew the other one, I didn't at all, approached me and said, let's start an ad agency. And that ended up, long story short, becoming a very hot tech agency in Silicon Valley. But it was pure luck on my part that that started out. And, and it was clear to me, this is why I said I got hip to the net in the 80s, we came to, we moved the agency to Silicon Valley in 1985. And because I saw there that tech was the future. And, you know, as one of my clients said, um, you know, boys, there's more action in one street in Sunnyvale than there is in all of North Carolina. And this was true. Um, but that was just the beginning of it. Now we're living this tech existence where we're extended by our phones and our, and our devices and we live in this different existence. How do, and we haven't even learned how to be social here. I mean, what we call social media is, is some big, fat, stupid companies that have learned how to do algorithms and, and keep us addicted. Well, you would that, think that our exposure to all of these different, uh, like really diverse belief systems, beliefs, kinds of people, that that would expand our tolerance, but it, it has, and it has that effect for some people, but for other people, it creates a resistance, you know, a sort of yeah. tribal resistance. So, okay. T tell us a little bit about, so we know more about you, what you're, what you, cause what you're doing and what you have been doing, you have a long and I think distinguished background with the EFF, you know, yeah. and trying to do a lot of good things, a lot of so local action in Austin, which is, I think where you live, right? You're in Austin. Yeah, I'm in Austin. I've been here most of the last, uh, oh, since 69. And uh, I did move to Colorado for a while. I had worked for Whole Foods Market at one time. Um, uh, when Whole Foods Market decided they wanted to do e-commerce and I was, you know, I knew people there and they were aware that I was involved with the internet in some way. So they came to me and asked me to come to work there. And e-commerce e was kind of a brand new thing. Um, my first experience with e-commerce and with the idea of internet commerce was uh, 
in the very early 90s, like 1991 or so, uh, I was an associate editor at a magazine called Boing Boing, which is now a, a yeah. blog. And um, I met another guy there who was also an editor there named Paco Xander Nathan. And Paco was this sort of like genius uh, a neural net programmer who it turned out lived in Austin. And we met and started hanging out together. And we had this discussion where um, we were saying, you know, we knew of a lot of people who wanted to uh, bring their various wares, whatever they had, to the market and couldn't because the cost of entry was so high. And uh, it seemed logical to us that, well, people could just sell things over the internet and the cost of entry could be much lower. And uh, our original intention with fringeware was that people... Uh, would bring their wares, you know, to uh, to the market through the internet, and that we would set up to sell things online. Well, we couldn't do that because the banks wouldn't let us do it um, because there was no SSL then. There was no way to encrypt a a, a financial transaction so that we you wouldn't leak the credit card numbers and that sort of thing. So uh, we created. Uh, a catalog and we decided well since we're going to create create a print publication uh like an email catalog we'll make a magazine kind of kind of you know we were influenced by boing boing uh we had been there and and i had uh, much of my life i had really been sort of i'm a pop culture uh <laughs> creature and i was very influenced by all kinds of publications um especially uh, uh, the Coevolution Quarterly and the Whole Earth Publications and all the way back to like when I was a kid, Famous Monsters of Filmland, which also had a catalog in the back. So we, we started publishing a magazine called Fringeware Review, and we also set up an email list, which was originally to uh, sort of bring people together who had things to sell that might want to sell them online, but it turned into a like a community and a culture, a cultural uh, phenomenon, not so much just about commerce. And we realized that, uh, that commerce really is uh, connected with community in a big way that, uh, you know, the, the idea of the Agora, the idea of, of a marketplace that's like a street market, uh, which is the focal point of a community as well as the focal point of a of, local commerce so we talked about building a street market in cyberspace and uh so that was one thing i'd been involved with and and uh certainly that probably influenced the whole foods guys to to hire me later and we did build e-commerce at whole foods and it was uh um it was i didn't realize at the time but what we were doing at whole foods was was a little bit ahead of the curve uh where e-commerce was concerned and also through, I had met the Boing Boing people through the well. I also got involved with Electronic Frontier Foundation through the well. And their first big case was here in Austin. So it was the Steve Jackson case, Steve Jackson, Jackson Games. And Steve uh, invited a bunch of people out to his place of business and said, we have got to start the first chapter of this Electronic Frontier Foundation. 
uh, he had worked that out with with Mitch Kapoor and that we would be the alpha chapter. So I became a member of the board of directors of the first chapter uh, for EFF, which became the only chapter that EFF ever had and still exists, EFF yeah. Austin. In fact, this talk I mentioned earlier that I gave was for EFF Austin. And I, at the same time, I was writing for, uh, I found that I could submit things that I had written uh, online pretty easily. And I was writing for Mondo 2000 and Wired. And I had a thing on Hotwired, which was Wired's online service for a while. Uh, and I wrote for the Austin Chronicle here in Austin. I was writing features about technology for a while. I became part of a blog called World Changing, which was around in the early 2000s and, and was uh, uh, sort of like a very much like the whole earth catalog really, but it was a, a, it was a blog instead. And we were writing about climate change and sustainability. And that had spun off from the Viridian design movement, which was started by my friend, Bruce Sterling, uh, where he was sort of challenged to, how do you get people to think about climate change and sustainability in a big way? without going through the traditional environmental movement, which seemed a little tired at the time. And he said, well, you know, you, you really need a design movement to do that. So he started this Viridian design thing and inspired a lot of people who got a lot of designers and futurists. And, and uh, I mean, all sorts of people started thinking about climate change and sustainability that otherwise probably wouldn't have thought of it. And world changing spun off from that. And then in around, around 2004 to 2006, I got involved in political technology, uh, partly because I'd been kind of a net activist. Uh, and then we could see that for like actual candidate politics, that the internet was going to become a big deal. And that sort of started with the Howard Dean campaign, where they made pretty effective use of uh, early social media. And I edited a book called Extreme Democracy, which are uh, co-edited it with Mitch Ratcliffe. And it was about, uh, it was about that. It was about the, the early social uh, technology for politics. And then uh, I led a project called Wireless Future here in Austin, which was uh, to boost the wireless industry. Um, and actually you were one of our advisors. I don't know if you remember that. And then uh, from that, I got uh, through people I met there, I became part of something called the Digital Convergence Initiative um, for South Texas, Southwest Texas. And uh, we got very focused on digital convergence. And I was also, I had been advise, uh, advising off and on uh, South by Southwest about programming. And I ended up programming, I programmed a wireless track for them for Wireless Future. And then for Digital Convergence, I, I programmed a Digital Convergence track, which was actually a lot of fun. I didn't really get much, I mean, it wasn't very remunerative. And then the, um, from Digital Convergence Initiative, from some work we tried to do there, we spun off this thing called Plutopia. Uh, which was a big annual event that we did for, I think, maybe five or six years. Um, and it was a very, like, future-focused event, a lot of, like, uh, uh, 
futurist installations and art installations, cyber art, um, unusual like musical uh, performances, uh, people like DJ Spooky and uh, um, um, oh, what is, I can't remember. There was a guy who did 8-bit music and I can't remember his name right now. Um, and Plutopia uh, eventually kind of wound down as a project, but uh, that's where we started this Plutopia podcast, which went dormant for several years after Plutopia went away and we've recently revived. So those are kind of uh, some of the things at least that I was involved with. And this is all kind of second career. I had 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 an earlier career as a, a, a bureaucrat, basically working for the state of Texas and, um, and, you know, I'm writing and, and wanting to do creative work. And it was really hard for me to figure out how to connect with the communities that I was interested in until the internet came along, until I joined the well and the well connected to the internet. And I started meeting all sorts of people that I never, never ever would have met if I was just kind of living here in Austin, Texas and working for the state. So, there's a, th a couple of themes I hear running through this, and I'd kind of like to go down both of those trails. Sure. One is that you've, you've got a, this great background in sort of, I'll call it, for lack of a better term, adaptive activism, right? You, you're sort of, a group comes along, you're, okay, you're involved with the well, you're involved with the EFF, you, you spin up something new like Plutopia, um, you, um, you know, you're involved in e-commerce at a, at a formative time and you're looking at that as a way to get things done. Um, that's one. And, and so a question there may be, and we could just park it for a moment while I go into the other one, uh, might be, is Plutopia enough for you now? Or do you see something beyond that? Is this something you're involved with? But just hold on to that one for a second while I go to the other one, which is, um, localism or maybe regionalism if you want to take in all of texas uh one of the things that i think and, and i did a ted talk about this it was my first last and only ted talk uh in in which you know i i, I visited the, the the fact that the center hasn't held anymore and my theory on that was that this is two years ago and I haven't changed it too much is that the only place we can't lie to each other we actually have to rely on the truth and we can find out what the truth is and deal with it is locally Right. I mean, there's, you know, if if if, um, if there's an earthquake, everybody's felt the earthquake. We're all helping each other out. Um, I've seen this a lot here in Santa Barbara where we have we've had mud flows and we've had, uh, you know, a number of natural disasters that have occurred. And, and there people have come together, you know, a lot of fires, wildfires. Everybody kind of gets on the same team for that. And and there's no appetite for false news and there's no tolerance for it. Right. And now those are the extreme cases where you really have to know what's going on, but you're not going to blame it on on the other political party or you're not going to blame it on on uh, something else. You're going to you're going to blame the event on natural causes. But I'm thinking that two things. One is that we we kind of need a newer and more effective form of activism, whatever that is. Um, and the other is, is that local is the place to start uh where we we are going to get stuff done there and i might add as a kind of a, a grace note on that that when 
1985, the internet first came into our home and Joyce, again, my wife took one look at it and said, the sweet spot in this thing is local. And uh, utopians like me are like, no, it's global, it's worldwide. We're all gonna get together and be on earth together. So no, 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 the sweet spot is local. So I'm beginning to think she was right about that. Yeah, well, you know, people used to say, think globally, act globally. Right, locally. exactly. And, and I changed that to think and act globally and locally. Because I think, Both. you know, you kind of have to, to, yeah, you have to, I mean, you're a citizen of the world, but you're also like, I'm a citizen of Austin, Texas. And much of my real world influence really can most effectively be here, even though through the internet, I've been able to extend my, um, my influence somewhat. Uh, and, you know, I have a set of friends that are all over the place. And um, 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 I, I think that has been one of the great things about the internet that, that you can connect with people regardless of geography. Yeah. But I, I think you're right. I, it, you still are rooted in what's local for you. Now, there are people who move around a lot and their sense of local may be different, but you're always somewhere, right? And, and even though we can appear to each other as apparitions as you and I are now in this particular Zoom, <laughs> um, yeah it's different than, you know, if you were living in my neighborhood and we were seeing each other every day and, and, and we had a kind of physical proximity to each other. And you have to acknowledge that you can't really say that, that, Oh, I'm, I'm going to be a citizen of the globe because, uh, because I have the internet and I can talk to people all over the place. Well, that is true that you are a citizen of the globe or the world and, and, and you can talk to people everywhere, but it, doesn't have the same weight. It doesn't really have the same gravity as, as uh, local. So I agree with you. I'm, that was a long agreement. Yeah. Well, there, there's something that's going on for me personally a little bit, which is that um, I was, until the pandemic hit, a literally a world traveler. Okay, my, my work... Mm -hmm required that I, my work as a journalist, my work as, you know, for Linux Journal for many years, also Texas-based when it was, required that, I mean, that, and, and my consulting as well, that I had to go to the UK. I had one consulting client that required, I spent a week a month in, in, in London and, in, and we stayed in Richmond, which is a little town on the outskirts of London. And I took an interest in those places. I mean, I, I felt like a, uh, you know, a welcome, more than a welcome visitor. I mean, I listened to local radio. I followed what was going on locally. Uh, I, I, I followed Arsenal and Chelsea to the football clubs to some degree to have something to talk about at the pubs. And, and I was, you know, I, I was into the area. And in a similar way, Joyce is very much a citizen of Paris. She, she went there uh, for her work um, uh, at least once a year. Uh, and we had a an apartment in New York. We still do actually, somebody's subletting it right now, but we still have that. And I grew up there. I mean, I, we're, we're, our apartment in New York is within two miles of the place where I was born and spent the first at least months and 
partly at my grandmother's house years of my life. And, you know, and, and I have, my gosh, I have maybe close to 2 million miles with United. Choice is well over three. Yeah. Um, the, what privileges come with that mean nothing right now because we're not going anywhere. And we're not going to go anywhere for a long time, probably, you know, maybe a year, two years. Um, at the Which age is really now, a change for you, your experience. It's a gigantic change. And, and, and I'm taking more interest in Santa Barbara, which is where I happen to be located. And I've always taken some interest in here, but I'm taking more now. And I'm realizing we own the house I'm in, you, you know, we're, um, we're not going anywhere. You know, this is where we're settling down, uh, probably finally. And that's, that's kind of come home for me. You know, it's kind of come home for me. It's not, I, I'm not sure it, if I had to pick a place in the world where I would want to live, uh, it would be it. I, I love Santa Barbara, but I'm an East Coast guy. I, in fact, I probably love Boston more than any other place I've ever lived. I love North Carolina when I lived there. Um, I love New York too. I didn't expect to love New York when we got the apartment there. But here is where I am. And here is where I can... Yeah meet people and it's 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 acquiring a difference for me it's requiring it's it i'm i'm grounded i'm getting a bit more grounded than i had been and it's sort of surprising me a bit it's like damn i live here i live here this yeah is my experience is is pretty different i mean i i'm tend to be pretty rooted in the spot you know i've i've always i've lived except for that time i spent in colorado which was maybe two and a half years I've lived in Texas and I've lived in Austin for a very long time. And when I left Austin, when I did live in Colorado, I was really eager to get back to Austin because I was actually kind of bored where I was. I was living in Boulder, uh, which is, you know, Boulder is a great place. I love going there, yeah, but, a great place. but Austin is so culturally vibrant that it's hard to leave. And that may be one of the reasons why I found it hard to live here is because there's just so much, so much here. And there's such a strong uh, sense of culture here and, and so much creativity in this town. And if you're in a town like that, it can be hard to leave. But, you know, when I grew up, I spent um, through my junior year in high school, I was in a little town called Big Spring. Uh, which incidentally is where my partner Scoop is from too. We've known each other all our lives. Mm. And um, um, I, I, my parents wanted to move to Odessa, Texas, which is, a, a I don't know, an hour's drive from Big Spring, I think. And, um, and it was my senior year. So they were going to stay through my senior year, but I... Uh, because of a romance I got involved with, I wanted, I decided I was ready to move to Odessa because I'd met a girl from Odessa <laughs> and we, and they went with it, you know, and actually we weren't able to move right away. I actually was driving, commuting every day to high school for about a month or two. Um, uh, but I was like moving myself to Odessa. And one of the things I found was that um, I didn't have, too many too much trouble pulling up those roots there was a comfort in that uh. you know and i think to some extent there's a comfort in having um, um a transition and having 
an opportunity to go somewhere else. A lot of people like really love travel because they feel that it, it it's expansive. You know, it kind of opens them up to travel. Um, and I think that, you know, we're looking at kind of two realities here. One reality is this thing of being rooted. And the other reality is this thing of moving and making transitions and some people move a lot and some move some and some people don't move at all but for those who have done some of both like in my case i have moved i have lived away from texas and i have like uprooted from my hometown where i had pretty deep roots i just uprooted myself and moved somewhere else and didn't think too much about it um i think that there's a different kind of, I don't know, we, talk, we were talking about reality, a different perception of reality. Uh, you get more of a sense that things are not established and set in stone. And it's kind of like a similar thing can happen in your head. You know, there are people who um, identify really strongly with their thoughts and the things that are happening in their head and think that that's kind of like reality for them. But if you, in the sense of traveling in that context is meditating, you know, if you meditate, you learn to detach yourself from your thoughts and you start to understand that for one thing, some of your thoughts aren't really your thoughts. They're things that were put there, you know, you picked them up socially and also those thoughts don't really have much substance. They're just thoughts, you know, and they come and they go and they're like clouds passing by and, uh, and you don't feel as much um, of, you don't feel as rooted in your thoughts in the same way that if you travel around and move around some, you don't feel as rooted in any single place. Um, well, one thing you, some people learn as meditators. I don't know if how widespread this is, but it is important to have your thoughts. I mean, your thoughts uh, are important and, and uh, to think is important, but it's also important not to get too attached to your thoughts and not to think of them as having more weight than they actually have. I was thinking about this, you were talking earlier. Uh, I can't remember exactly what you were saying, but this is something I was thinking about then is, is that, is that the problem is not so much that you think or think a certain way or have to, you know, have your thoughts and your concepts in order to survive. Um, the, the problem that comes from those kinds of things is getting too attached to them. Hmm. And I guess what I'm really getting at here is that it's good to learn a kind of flexibility. And once you've learned to be flexible, you just become flexible. You know, you've moved around a lot. And even though you're rooted in Santa Barbara now and are probably going to stay there, you still have a flexibility you never would have had uh, if you had stayed in one place all your life. You know, you've, you've, you've learned that there's not a single reality or a single way of being or a single way of thinking about things. And we were talking earlier about solutions. And I think one solution to the problems that we're having right now is to help people to be more flexible in their thinking and less attached to their thoughts and their beliefs. I mean, beliefs to me 
are sort of the problem. Um, right. Obviously, people are going to believe this or believe that, but being really attached to your beliefs and thinking that your beliefs are, are you know, thinking about them as a kind of dogma, that's the problem. And, and the solution to that is probably in getting this kind of flexibility. So if you can get people a little bit, if you can dig them, dig their roots a little bit, um, and I don't know the answer to how to do that, but, but uh, I mean, some people just get, something will happen that will cause them to have to move or have to travel or whatever, and it'll open them up a little bit. But other people don't. Other people don't open up. So I don't know if this will be metaphorical or not. It, it could be. Um, I, I, first, I, I love your, um, before I go into the metaphor, uh, I, I love what you're saying about flexibility. I think that may be the one thing, you know, I mean, to, to deprogram people, to recruit people to, de to deprogramming uh, is, it isn't so much, I mean, if you're asking, it's maybe too much to ask people to give up their belief system. It may not be too much to ask them to be flexible. You know, in other yeah. words, you know. Um, um, Except that others have different beliefs and that, you know, it's valid. Well, I think for the most part, at least in, in our culture here in the U.S., we, we do put up with other people's religions. We got a way big, big, big pile of varied Some religions of here. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I, we can have fun with it. I mean, it, I mean, probably far more war and death has occurred over religion than any other topic, I suppose. But um, that is certainly over belief systems, if nothing else. Uh, but, uh, but I think asking people to be flexible and mostly, and this is where the internet can come in handy, just open to uh, open information just open to useful information. You know, there's, um, whether you're, for example, you know, a, a climate change believer or denier, um, there's an awful lot of information to be had on the topic. It's not like there's a shortage of that. Um, and so even if you're a denier and, and you know, you, there's certainly you know, a great deal of information on, on that front. I think, you know, certainly on, I mean, I'm, I'm, one of the things I'm hoping now that, you know, the, at least the last elections will be settled by next year, which is only less than a month and a half away. Um, we'll have, we may, you know, have an opportunity finally to kind of jump out of politics as the place where the, the belief, the sports belief systems are playing out you know, we can care about other things. Like maybe that's take that, put back burner that one a little bit and let the administrative systems with their flywheels do whatever they're going to do as the whole thing kind of muddles through and we start working on things that are not necessarily amenable to policy. But here's the metaphor I'm thinking of and it actually goes, and, and this comes from my background as somebody who flies all over the place and always sits by the windows of airplanes, taking pictures out the windows. So flying across parts of Canada, but also in one interesting US exception part of the part of Texas that you're from, the roads are not east, west and north, south. They're cockeyed just a little bit. Mm 
Do you know what that's about? I mean, it's Big Spring, it's Odessa. I don't know if it's Midland or not. I have to look at a map. But I, but that part of Texas is like when somebody drew the maps, it's like, no, north is over, is, is left a little bit by about 10 or 15 degrees. Do you know what that's about? Yeah, they might have been a little cross-eyed when they did it. I don't know. <laughs> It's no, just an interesting thing I mean, because it's not all of Texas. It's just that section. You know, I mean, why do you build a road? You need to get from one place to another and, yeah. and places just don't, aren't lining up out there. And there's so few places, you know, that um, uh, you don't necessarily have a place to strictly do north or strictly do south. Yeah. So maybe maybe somebody drew a line between Big Spring and Odessa, maybe, and everything else is just kind of parallel to that. Yeah, um, yeah, or or possible. you know, Big Spring to Lubbock or whatever. Well, where I'm going with that is, I think there's certain things that just kind of get fixed and nobody looks at them again, and there it is, it's just done. I mean, I don't know why here in Santa Barbara, we don't have north. All the roads downtown are cockeyed by 45 degrees, and that means that a road going north is also going west about the same amount. So you could say yeah. you're either going north, or you're going west. It's a really stupid thing to do. They should have just made them a grid. And it has nothing to do with parallel to the ocean. That, that's the thing in Canada. You, you realize after a while that all the roads, these are parallel to Lake Huron. This one's here are parallel to Lake Ontario. This one here is parallel to Lake Erie. And that's what they did. They just kind of built these roads. And where they, there are places where the ones parallel to Lake Huron kind of intersect with the ones that are parallel to Lake, to, to Lake Erie and they work it out. Um, yeah. You know, it, when, when, uh, when Marcia and I first got together, my wife and I, um, we took certain substances and went up on a, <laughs> a mountain here. Uh, we call it a mountain. It's kind of a hill here in Austin called Mount Bunnell and walked up and we're kind of like looking down at Austin beneath us. I think it was, uh, it, it was dusk or it was night and we're looking down and I had this shock, this real shock that hit me when I realized that the streets were not perfectly perpendicular, that they were just kind of <laughs> running all over the place. And I realized that where I had grown up, the streets had been pretty straight, you know? Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and also I, you know, I grew up looking at comic books where everything was kind of linear, you know? And yeah. I was just, Somehow I'd always carried it in my head that, that cities were laid out on a sort of linear grid and, and, and everything was at perfect right angles and that sort of thing. And it just ain't like that. And that's like, um, it's organic and it grows organically. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. you know, if there's, if, if you've got a hill, you might go around it or you might go over it, but you probably don't have a straight line through it, you know? It's um. It reminds me of um. Uh, at two places in one in the U.S. or the other is in Europe. Um, where I mean, because I grew up around New York, New York in particular. I mean, Manhattan. There's no reason Manhattan should be a grid of streets, and in fact, the lower end of Manhattan is not. Um, Boston is not. Boston is is cow paths. Oh, I mean, I it, it, yeah. it's it's, and so are most of the ranking cities in Europe. I mean, it, if you're, I mean, you're walking around London, you need a profound sense of direction or familiarity with, with, the locale before you, because it's not there's no grid there. 
Um, in Barcelona, they did build a grid off the side of it, off the side of the Gothic district called the Example. I don't know how it's pronounced, but it's spelled something like example, but it's an actual grid. They actually put one there. But most cities in Europe don't have that. And in fact, most of the world, if the city's older, it's, it's cow pass or whatever animals they followed around or whatever the, you know, wherever the streams went and they kind of followed those. And I suppose Austin was a bit like that in some ways, you know. Well, so. you know, I live in a neighborhood. I mean, you usually think of there being various paths in and out of a particular neighborhood or subdivision or whatever. But I'm living in a subdivision, an, an area where they built almost no through streets. And oh, wow. a lot of cul-de-sacs. There's tons of cul-de-sacs in this neighborhood. And there's kind of one main through street, which for a while had got really bollocks because uh, a lot of building had happened, you know, like south of here and everybody was coming through there and they eventually had to build another road. But yeah. they, you know, they did that by design and, and it's actually kind of cool because most people can have a house that doesn't have through traffic and, you know, you don't have cars whizzing by all the time. And, uh, and I appreciate that. Sometimes I'm frustrated that there's so few ways to get to my house, you know? Yeah. But, but that's, you know, as, as uh, cities and subdivisions and areas are built out, there's a lot of considerations and this considerations can vary and they're all just sort of different, you know? And that gets back to our thing of, about how if you move around, you start getting exposed to different realities and you get more flexible in your thinking. And, you know, yeah. I never would have thought about building a, a neighborhood that was mostly cul-de-sacs, but it makes sense to me. I understand why they did it. It's just like there's this old onion story that there was stoner architect designed house, uh, designs house with nothing but foyers or something <laughs> like that. You know? Yeah, <laughs> But there's, yeah. We've been at this an hour, and so I'm, 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 I want to make this easy for Catherine because uh, she's the one who edits it. And uh, so maybe we should just park it there where, you know, we've got this metaphor of, of accepted ways of doing things that are actually old ways that haven't changed because nobody found a way around it or because there really was a natural barrier. I don't know, whatever it happened to be. Um, uh, but we'll do it again and yeah, it's it, been a great it's conversation been, it's been it's been great it's been great having you on it's been great you know having a a fun conversation even if it's not conclusive maybe it shouldn't be maybe none well, of them should be right now i've given up on conclusive i i have too it doesn't to, seem to work <laughs> only only life is conclusive and we don't have much choice about that so exactly you know. so it's been great thanks everybody okay. it's been Thank reality 2.0 and and we'll put on our website for this where um, Plutopia, whatever else you want us to put on there. Okay, great. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Lifestyle. We'll see you now.